Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. And today we will be looking at verses 19 through 25. And just by way of introduction, these verses are considered by most scholars and commentators as sort of hinge verses for the epistle to the Hebrews. Um, everything has been building up. Uh, there was a little bit of a hint of this same truth in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. But today we're going to look at what all the drama is leading up to, which is a series of exhortations, a series of things that the writer tells the original audience, the church, to do. And we always are hungry for people to tell us something to do. But he doesn't merely tell us something to do. He tells us why we need to do it and for what reason and for what reason we have hope to be able to do it. And so today we're looking at Hebrews chapter 10 beginning with verse 19. Hear now the word of the living God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we take time this morning to listen to you, because we long to hear you speak to us, we thank you that you have given us this word. And this word is for the purpose of exhorting us, encouraging us, convicting us, urging us on in the battle. We would pray that the one who inspired this word, the Holy Spirit, who now dwells in us as his temple, would give us light, would illumine our minds, would make our hearts tender, pliable, and teachable, and that we would receive the engrafted Word of God that is able to save our souls. And may we receive it gratefully today. In Christ's name, amen. Now, the author of Hebrews has gone to great pains in the last few chapters in particular, telling us that the Lord Jesus Christ is a better priest than any priest after Aaron or any Levitical priest, that he's offered a better sacrifice than the blood of bulls and goats, that he has inaugurated a better covenant, the new covenant now has, has begun, uh, and the old covenant which was intended to be temporary, has ceased. And so he's also told us that 
Jesus is superior in every way to probably one of the most important figures of the Old Covenant, Moses. And so now he's going to move from what theologians call indicative to the imperative. Let's talk about the indicative and the imperative because that's key to understanding the verses that are before us. Our response to God, our obedience to him is always founded on, enabled by, and persevered in through our union with Christ. And so when we look at biblical imperatives or commands, we need to have a full understanding of who we are in Jesus Christ. And so when I talk about indicatives, I'm talking about a mood of a verb used to express an act. An indicative explains what is true. It's not a command, but it, it expresses the rationale behind the command or the foundation for giving the command. An imperative is something that indicates authority or urgency or necessity or a command. It, it has authority, it has the characteristics of a, a command. An imperative is a statement of what one must do. And in this text, we have a classic uh, illustration. This will help you in your Bible reading. When God issues commands... They are not naked commands or bare commands just coming out of his mouth. They are commands always connected to, commands always seen in the light of what comes before them. And what comes before them are things that Christ has done for us that we could not do ourselves. And so the indicatives are statements of truth. You might call them doctrine. You might call them teaching. But they are statements of things that Christ has accomplished, Christ has done. And so in order to truly understand what the biblical writers mean, we need to think through this carefully. The great gospel imperatives to holiness are always rooted in the indicatives of grace that are able to sustain the weight of those commands and imperatives. The apostles do not make the mistake that's often made in gospel preaching. Uh, the indicatives are supposed to be more powerful than the imperatives if we're really preaching the gospel. So often our preaching of indicatives, that is what Christ has done for us, are not strong enough and great enough and holy enough and gracious enough to sustain us in obeying and following the imperatives. And so our teaching on holiness ends up becoming a whip or a rod or a prod to beat people on the back because we've looked at uh, the commands and we have seen that we have failed to keep them. And we see the imperatives toward holiness have often lost sight of the indicatives of the gospel that sustain them. Woven into the warp and woof of the New Testament exposition of what it means for us to be holy is the great groundwork that the self-existent, thrice-holy God has in himself, by himself, and for himself, committed himself and all three persons of his being to bringing about the holiness of the people. As Sinclair Ferguson says, this is the Father's pur purpose, the Son's purchase, and the Spirit's ministry. 
And so the relationship between the indicative, that which Jesus has done, and the imperative, that which he calls us to do, could be summarized by the simple statement, be who you are. Become who you are. You are now united to Christ. You now have available to yourself all of the benefits of Christ. And we have a responsibility to live out the implications of who we are in Christ. We are to become that. But the only place we can get the power to enable us to persevere, the power to enable us to keep the faith, the power to enable us to hold fast our confession, the power to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, where do we get that? We get that from the gospel indicatives of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so that's how you stay motivated in the Christian life. Uh, delight can easily become duty if you forget and lose the power of the gospel upon your heart. Let me give you one more just to help you understand. In the book of Ephesians, Paul gives us a command. He tells us to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. But he doesn't stop with that. He continues on in the verse and says, in the same way, forgiving one another as God in the same way or in Christ has forgiven you. And so the imperative, we're to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving, is firmly anchored in the reality that we have been forgiven in Christ. And so our obedience has its origin in God's prior action. And forgetting the truth results in self-righteousness, that is, holiness by Nike theology, just do it, or by Avis theology, just try harder. That's pride, righteousness, and despair is, I can never live up to this, I give up. None of those are acceptable. So, let's think this morning what we have before us in Hebrews. We have two powerful gospel grand indicatives. And then that's followed by three imperatives. And so, the author of Hebrews is going to give us the foundation that uh, we build upon in our obedience to what Christ has already done for us. And we're going to see that that gives us the sustenance we need. It gives us the foundation to stand upon to be able to respond in obedience to what he has called us. And so the first thing he tells us is that we, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, the first grand indicative is this. We have access to God. We have access to God. The second grand indicative is we have an advocate with the Father. Two things. We have access to God and we have an advocate with the Father or before God. So he assumes in a rather matter of fact in the opening phrase that his hearers have a proper confidence in their divine access. He says, therefore, brother, since we have what? confidence. We're not trembling. We're not coming with our head hung down. We're not coming in fear. We're not coming expecting to be rejected. We're coming with boldness. We're coming with confidence. Why? We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way he has opened for us through the curtain that is his body. 
And this confident access comes from the torn curtain of Christ's crucified body. The rending of Christ's flesh upon the cross, which brought his death, perpetrated a simultaneous tearing from the top to the bottom of the curtain that had barred the way into the holiness, holy of holies. In the temple and in the tabernacle, there was a curtain, a thick curtain, that barred the way. Only once a year could anyone go in behind that curtain, and only for minutes, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would go and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice upon the altar... And upon the uh, Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim that were uh, residing above it and uh, carved out, and he would sprinkle the blood, and thus God would accept the atonement if the high priest came back out. And if he didn't, he had a rope tied to his ankle, and they'd pull him out, maybe send somebody else in. But it (laughs) it was filled with uncertainty. But now that curtain has been torn. Now we walk confidently, not just to the holy place, but in the holy of holies, we are united to the one who is there, our Lord Jesus Christ. We are in union with him. Whereas before we could only have surrogate access through the high priest who slipped behind the curtain once a year for a heart-pounding few minutes, now we have permanent access through the blood and torn body of Christ. And this confidence is not a swagger, but it is a real confidence in permanent access. Earlier, the writer of Hebrews said to us, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive grace and find mercy to help us in time of need. They had great confidence that they had access to God. I cannot tell you what a grand blessing access is. We have somewhere to go. We have somewhere to go when we're hurting. We have somewhere to go when we're disappointed. We have someone to go to when we're hopeless. We have someone to depend upon. We have access to the one who spoke the world into existence by the word of his mouth. I have access to him. You'd think I was pretty impressive if I had access to one of the greatest athletes in the world or if I had access to one of the most famous actors. Oh, Pastor Tim knows this person or that person. Or Pastor Tim gets invited to the White House often. Or Pastor Tim knows this person. No. That all pales in comparison to the reality of the truth that in my walk with Jesus Christ, I have access to the one who causes all things to be. (laughs) If that doesn't blow your mind, you ain't got one. (laughs) It is amazing that we have that. And so this access is a reality. It is a boldness. We come with confidence, not in ourselves, but it is a subjective confidence. It is something we know and experience and live with, that we won't be rejected. We will be accepted, that we won't be uh, having him turn his back on us and abandon us. He did that to his son in order that he could face sinners like you and me through what his son has accomplished on our behalf. And so, you know, people often come to me and say, Pastor, would you pray for me? As if my prayers 
have special access, that somehow I've been given the golden key, that somehow because it's my job, therefore if you ask me to pray for you, my prayers will be more effective. You need to get rid of that conception. I'm happy to pray for you, and I try to pray for you regularly. I count it a privilege to pray for you. But you've got access into the Holy of Holies. You are united with our advocate, the great high priest, standing in the Holy of Holies. You have every promise in the Bible at your disposal, and you can enter into the throne, not of law, which terrorizes, not Mount Sinai, but Mount Calvary. Because of the torn flesh of Christ, we can enter. The second thing we have is we have an advocate. The confidence in access is especially strong because we couple it with a confidence in Christ's priestly advocacy. We have a great priest over the house of God. As we know in the tabernacle uh, and the daily vestments of the Arianic priest were specifically spelled out to Moses by God. But they were shadows of Christ's ultimately, ultimate heavenly advocacy. God's instructions demanded that the Old Testament priest wear 12 stones on his breastplate over his heart to represent his people. And the representative stones on the shoulder as well, for Aaron is to bear the name on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. Now Jesus, our ultimate advocate, bears our names not just over his body and heart, but in the very center of his being. We are in union with him. Union with Christ means everything. It is foundational to the rest of our Christian life. It is the heart and soul of New Covenant theology. Union with Christ. I am united to him. I am his. He is mine. There is an organic connection between him and me of faith. And he is now my priest at the right hand of God. This access and advocacy, the dual sources of our confidence together, uh, provide a foundation. They bring us strength. Jesus is both the curtain, that is our access, and the priest, that is our advocate, pleading his work before the Father. His torn body, his shed blood provides access for us into the presence of the Father. And our access, in, in our access, he is our perpetual priestly advocate. This means, or was meant to make the ancient church and you and I confident and to confidently point our ship into the high seas with strength and power. We are not only to exist in a hostile culture, but we're to buckets waves. While arrogance can never be the Christian's way, confidence must mark his life. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And so the logic here, seriously applied, pushes us 
to a great height and degree of confidence. It means more than just God merely being graciously disposed toward us. It means that we can have victory. We may be defeated for a moment, but evil will never, ever prevail. Access and advocacy, what confidence they bring. When Chrysostom was brought before the Roman emperor, the emperor threatened him with banishment if he remained a Christian. Chrysostom said this, you can banish me from this world, or excuse me, you cannot banish me for this world. This is my father's house. But I will slay you, said the emperor. No, you cannot, said the noble champion of the faith, for my life is hid with Christ and God. I will take away your treasures. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from men, and you shall have no friends left. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to hurt me. Nothing you can do to hurt me. You need to wake up every morning with that kind of confidence, and so do I. Somebody kills me, it's just a promotion. Now, it's going to leave a lot. It's going to leave a lot of carnage behind, and I'm sure all of you will be doubled up in grief if I go. But I will miss you, but I will love where I am. Confidence. Confidence. Assurance. These kinds of words are what he's using. And so, from the vantage point of this remarkable confidence that ought to be in every believer's heart, the writer of Hebrews now gives us three sweeping exhortations, the first of which is to draw near to God. We can catch the force of the argument if we consider again verses 19 through 21, which lead up to it. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body, since we have a great priest over the house of God, that is, because of the confidence we have from our grand assurance and gr a gracious advocate, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. A sincere heart. He not only tells us what to do, but he tells us how to do it. In full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Under the old covenant, when the priests were consecrated, they were sprinkled with blood. Also, when the old covenant began, the people had been sprinkled with blood. But with the new covenant, when the people of this Hebrew church came to faith, their hearts were inwardly sprinkled with Christ's blood to cleanse them from a guilty conscience. For the first time in their lives, guilt was completely gone and their conscience could rest easy. Then they were baptized, that is, their bodies were washed with pure water, an outward visible sign of an inner sprinkling and cleansing that they had experienced. Ezekiel mentions that God will sprinkle us with water, that he will put his spirit within us and give us a new heart and a clean heart. And so these great gospel indicatives and privileges are ours. And to such lives, the teacher exhort, and it comes with great appeal and power. 
Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. The heart in the Bible always represents your inner life, the whole inner person, okay? That's the heart. There must be an inner sincerity from one's whole being. One must be true, that is, completely genuine, wholehearted, very similar to the language in Matthew 5, 8 of the pure in heart. There are to be no mixed motives. There are to be no divided loyalties. As Kierkegaard wrote in his book, to will one thing, purity, to will one thing. It doesn't mean it's ab uh, it doesn't have any stain or it doesn't have any sin or it doesn't have any cracks or it's not perfect, but rather it is willing one thing. And the great beauty in the Christian life is when your will becomes one with God's will, where your heartbeat is to do His will. And if you focus upon the gospel indicatives, the imperatives will not be drudgery and duty to you. They will be your delight. You will want to please the one who has given you so much. Negatively, we can picture this idea from everyday life as we reflect on those people who, after being introduced to us, keep on smiling and talking to us, but at the same time, they're looking around us, looking behind us at other people and other things. They're not really interested in us. They only see us as objects of a means for something else they want. In our relationship with God, such behavior is anathema. Positively stated, a sincere heart is represented in the words focus or wholeheartedness. Jesus makes essentially the same point in John chapter 4 and verse 23 when he says, God desires that those who worship him in spirit, that is those whose entire human spirit is engaged in worship. This is how we're to draw near to God in prayer or in worship, real, genuine, absorbed in him. And the key is not being distracted by the menacing waves and storms around us. He knows that essential to their survival is the ability to perpetually come to God in prayer that is sincere and wholehearted and fully engaged with the full assurance of faith, confidence in God. The next exhortation he gives us is to hold on to the hope. Let us hold fast. The next exhortation flows really uh, from the preceding because if we draw near to God, we will be disposed to hear the command, persevere in hope. Let us unswervingly uh, hold to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. We live in a world that is marked by hopelessness. I think most people anymore, if you ask them, why are you? What is your purpose in being here? What is your reason for being? What is your raison d'etre, if you're French? <laughs> what is the hope? What gets you up every day? What, what causes you to put one foot in front of the no other? What is it that you're anticipating? What is it that you're expecting? What is it you're hoping for? And many, many people answer the same way the British atheist Bertrand Russell answered that question. Listen to his answer. As he was being honest, granted, he gave in his book A Free Man's Worship. The labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, 
all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins only within the scaffolding of the truths only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built the firm foundation of unyielding despair <laughs> doesn't sound very firm to me does it to you most people however are not as cerebral as Bertrand Russell he's a brilliant man they base their he, he just didn't have any wisdom but he's a brilliant man there's a difference by the way you can be a dummy like me and be wise or you can be an intellectual like him and be lost like a ball in high weeds. Most people, however, uh, William Marston of New York University asked 3,000 people, what have you to live for? He was shocked to discover that 94% were simply enduring the present while they're waiting on the future. Waited for something to happen, waited for next year, waited for a better time, waited for somebody to die, waited for tomorrow. Alexander Pope said, hope springs eternal in the human breast. Man never is, but always to be blessed. So many people live on so little surviving in this world that just putting one foot in front of the other as they depend upon an unsubstantiated, ungrounding hope. But that is why the gospel is so, such good news. Because it gives you the one thing that everybody does not have. And that is hope. The gospel is filled with hope. And the Christian hope has substance. The hope that our text commends here in verse 23 is a conscience reference back to the writer's statement in 6 verses 19 and 20. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. It is grounded in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, enthronement, and session of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is anchored at the right hand of God. It is so substantial and real, it is called an anchor. Now, no ancient or modern sailor who knows what can happen during an ocean voyage will go to sea in a ship that carried no anchor. Even today, and even if the ship were the greatest and most modern vessel afloat, every sailor knows that the situations might arise in which the hope of the ship and all her company will depend not on the captain, not on the crew, not on the engines, not on the compass or the rudder, but on the anchor. When all else fails, there is hope in the anchor. And it was so easy for Christians to appropriate this symbol because its very shape uses the form of the cross. Literally, the author here commands, let us hold on unbendingly to the hope we confess, for he who promised is faithful. The anchor is not in the sea, it's in heaven at the right hand of God. 
the celestial holy of holies. It is anchored in God's very presence as the wind picks up and the ship bobs like a cork as we sail through life and all of its troubles and all of its heartbreaks, all of its disappointments, all of its hard times, all of its apparent despair. We must hang on to the confession of our hope without wavering for our hope is anchored in our access and advocacy before the Father. We must hang on with tenacity so that we will endure any storm. But where do we get the power to do that? Here's what's missing. It isn't you hanging on with all your might. It's that God is faithful. He's not letting go of you. Your anchor is the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, and you are tethered to him. And no matter how much comes at you, no matter how low you may go, no matter how much you may doubt, no matter how much you may fear, no, much, no matter how much you want to run away, no matter how much you want to escape, He's there and He's holding on to you and that gives you the power to hold on to Him. If He was ever to let you go for one second, all of us would be down the tubes. Quickly. One second. One second. And then finally, and I may have to preach another whole sermon on this because you're not listening fast. Well, i got some time. All right. I can wax eloquent here for a little while. The final exhortation is to mutually consider one another, and it extends through verse 25, which is actually a participle phrase carrying on the thought of verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. People have a thousand reasons to stay away from the church. I know I've heard them all. And it's not a new problem. <laughs> the early Jewish church had a fall off in attendance due to serious persecution, ostracism, apostasy, and arrogance. Today, persecution and ostracism may not be our experience, but people find many, many other reasons to absent themselves from worship not the least of which is laziness. But de-church Christians have always been an aberration. When you start talking about this stuff, aren't you glad you're here today? Because we'd be talking about you if you weren't. <laughs> there, are so there are solid biblical reasons why no one should ever forgo going to church. First is what I'd like to call an ontological reason. Doesn't that impress you? Ontological? The word ontos in Greek means being. It is the study of being. And so the first is what I call ecclesial ontology. The special existence, the being or presence of Christ in the gathered church. This is dramatically portrayed in the first chapter of the book of Revelation as Christ is holding the seven stars in his right hand and he walks among the seven golden lampstands that are emblematic of the church. We meet Christ in a unique and special way in corporate worship. It is true that a person does not have to go to church to be Christian. He also does not have to go home to be married either. 
But in both cases, if he does not, he will have a very poor relationship. You want to know why so many of us are weak spiritually? Why so many of us are just dull and dead? Why so many of us are just sort of nonchalant about our relationship with Christ? Why some, you know, years ago when I was teaching through a Campus Crusade book, and I'm talking 40 years ago. I'm 106. No, it was 40 years ago. And they had a section on fellowship, and I'll never forget it. He says, if, if you take a log out of the fireplace that's on fire, and you set it to the side and leave it there, what will happen? Eventually, the log will go out, right? It loses the connection with other logs, and it loses the heat. And if we absent ourselves from the place of worship with God's people, it's like taking a log out of the fire and throwing it on the hearth and leaving it there and leaving it sitting there. And, and then our prayers become boring to us. Everything becomes boring to us. Second reason you should come to church, I'm glad you asked me why, doxology. If you absent yourself from the church, you will encumber your ability to glorify God in worship. Congregational worship makes possible an intensity of adoration that does not as readily occur in solitude. On a tragic level, a mob tends to descend to a much deeper level of cruelty than individuals. It is also understood that the appreciation and enjoyment of an informed group of music lovers at a symphony is more intense than that of a single listener at home. That's why people go to concerts. This holds true for worship as well. Corporate worship provides a context where passion is joyously elevated and God's Word ministers to us with unique power. The Reformers never called preaching sacramental, but it's pretty dadgum close. There is a sense in which the preaching of the Word carries with it a power that is unique to the gathered church. There are things going on in this room that you cannot see that God is doing in people's lives. That's why you need to go to church. Martin Luther spoke of it when he said, At home in my house, there is no warmth or vigor in me, but the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart, and it breaks its way through. Theology. It's also true that giving up meeting with other believers hampers our theology and our doctrinal understanding. Paul prays that the church in Ephesus may have more power together with all the saints to grasp and to know the love that surpasses knowledge. Great theological truths are best learned corporately with all the saints. Theology is done by the church assembled. And finally, psychology. Not in the sense of the study of the psyche, the soul, but rather its development. For example, the virtue of love enjoined by the second half of the Decalogue, that is the Ten Commandments, requires others for its development. You may theoretically be able to develop faith and hope alone by yourself, but that's questionable, but never love. Love is a communal activity of the church. 
Now, I know what people say. Well, Pastor, I don't think I have to go to church. I got this group of people I meet with. I meet with these people outside of the church, and we're really serious about the faith, and we love each other, and it's just a great time. And, you know, I know you're a pastor. That's your job. That's what you've got to say. But in reality, I get that somewhere else. I want to tell you something. The church is the bride of Christ. The church belongs to Jesus. Now, we don't go as far as the Roman Catholic Church goes in saying the church is the dispenser of salvation. It's not. But the church is where the people of God gather together to give praise to God. I want to tell you something about a church. You don't get to pick who you get to be with in the church. God sends people to the church that you would never, ever in your own life ever take one step toward to know. Let's be honest. And I might be one of them. You know, I, I'm, I'm fully prepared to hear that. But God always puts people in church who are a little different, a little difficult. Why? Because we don't know how to love, and we have to learn how to love. And if you're only around people who are like-minded with you that sit around and congratulate yourselves for being so spiritual, then there you go. Come try church. You get to love lots of kinds of people. And that's how God intended it. You can't be sanctified the way God wants to sanctify us without participation into the life of the church. And so, one theoretically can develop faith and hope, maybe alone, but never love. So for all these reasons, ontological, doxological, theological, psychological, it is impossible to be a sound Christian while voluntarily absenting oneself from the assembled church. The author of Hebrews is pleading with the people not to make this mistake because he knows they'll never survive. They'll never survive, and neither would we. Laxity can destroy us. So what to do? The answer in the, this exhortation dominates the section. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. The idea of spurring one another on is an exciting concept because the word translated spur is a very strong word. In the Revised Standard Version, it uses the word provoke or stir up. It is the word paroxmos, from which we get paroxysm, a sudden convulsion or a violent emotion. It's prodding our brothers and sisters toward a life of love and good deeds. And so the author wants us to take knowledge of one another on how we might provoke each other to the blessed paroxysms of grace. And here he suggests several ways we can do that. First, through prayer. We can pray for each other by name and pray for the development of a volitional, selfless love for specific good deeds. And it will happen. It is simple as that. Do you think the pastor or the spouse or the boss uh, uh, or whoever's grouchy, pray that he or she will have an attack of niceness? Pray. If you think I'm boring, pray for me that I won't be. If you think, you know, I hate that guy's accent or I hate that guy's this or that, pray for me. You know what will happen? I'm not probably going to change, but you will. That's what will happen. Example. Another way to spur people on to love and good deeds is by example. Oswald Chambers says, It is a most disturbing thing to be smitten in the ribs by some provoker from God, by someone who is full of spiritual activity. Full of spiritual activity. 
Ma, I think it was uh, Mark Twain who says there's nothing more annoying than a good example. But Mark, <laughs> Mark Twain <laughs> was the speaking of the church. God's Word. God's Word is our basic primer for love and good deeds, and when we internalize it, and it works in us, we become conduits of its virtue, uh, and we become provokers of grace. But finally, we learn to encourage one another. You see... One of the reasons we have community groups, one of the reasons we have other times, you can't fulfill what this is talking about simply in a worship service. There's got to be time spent with other believers. And if you're revolving around the church on the periphery, but never penetrating into the core and building relationships with people, you are missing that encouragement. And you need that encouragement because of the deceitfulness of sins and the hardness of our hearts. We need other people around us. You say, well, I'm not a people person, Pastor Tim. Well, get over it. Get over it <laughs> and become one. I understand that some people like to recharge their batteries alone and I myself have been known to enjoy that from time to time but Christianity is nothing if it's not relationships Christianity is nothing if it's not loving one another it's nothing but it is that that is the sum and substance of it and that's how it shows itself out in a life in someone's life there's amazing power in an encouraging word. You and I can change a life with a kind word. Encouragement is a Christian duty. Lives of provocation through prayer, example, scripture, and encouragement are gifts that the church desperately needs. We need to have relationships in which people can speak to us that encouraging word. When I was a junior in high school, we, uh, when I, yeah, junior, uh, they combined in my hometown in the South the black high school and the white high school. And I had an English teacher named Miss Cochran. She was the first black teacher I ever had. And uh, she was passionate. We just loved her. And I hated to leave that class. But one day she had me give up, get up and give a presentation. And so when I got up and did it, I, did, I don't even know what I talked about, but I talked about something. And when I sat down, she looked at me, and she pointed at me, and she said, Tim Posey, you're either going to be a politician, you're going to be a lawyer, or you're going to be a preacher. And I said, there's one thing for sure I will never be. <laughs> but you know what? Those words from that teacher ring in my ear part of the call of God upon my life to be a teacher happened to me in, when I was a junior in high school when a black and a white high school were combined and a black teacher looked at me and said you'll be a preacher God has ways of putting people in our lives to say encouraging words and that's what coming to church is about that's what being involved in a church is about it's being part of a community the church is not a bag of shiny marbles that are beautiful and pretty and glisten in the light and are wonderful to look at, but you take a bag of marbles and you shake them up and they bang against each other. No, the church is like a cluster of grapes. 
and you take a bag of grapes and you start swinging around the bag of grapes and hitting, what happens? Well, they ooze out on each other. We're to bear one another's burdens. We're to encourage one another. We're to pray for one another. We're to love one another. We're to lift up one another. We are to listen to one another. We are to grieve with one another. We are to rejoice together. We are to lament together. We're meant to do it all together because that is the church. And ecclesiology has been a doctrine that has been so lost in America for so long. May God revive it. And I see elements of it in this church. We must draw near in prayer to God with a wholehearted sincerity. We must hold on to the anchor of hope we possess. And our hope is in Jesus and is anchored in heaven where he is interceding for us. Not cockeyed optimism, but a tremendous reality. We must devote ourselves to the corporate church doing everything we can to provoke each other to love and good deeds. And you'll never do that. You will never do any of this unless you ground it upon the grand indicatives of the gospel. We have access. We have an advocate. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the book of Hebrews. And we thank you for the passage that we have looked at today. And we pray that as we immerse ourselves in the truth of the access we have in Jesus, of the advocacy we have in his high priesthood, we would be driven more and more to draw near to you in prayer and worship, to hold on to the anchor of hope, and to devote ourselves to the corporate church to do everything we can to provoke each other to love and good deeds. And may we do it as we see the day approaching, the day of the Lord, which is a day of both restoration and a day of judgment. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give as people who are wholeheartedly devoted to you. In Jesus' name, amen.